You're listening to the podcast Bible Companion Series by author P.H. Thompson. This is a chronological Bible study going chapter by chapter, discovering Christ in all of Scripture. This is Exodus chapter 34. Verses 1 through 4, Replacement Stone Tablets. God is well aware of what has happened at the foot of the mountain, that Moses has dealt with the rebels who worshipped the golden calf. Part of his angry response was to smash the two stone tablets containing the Ten Commandments, symbolically breaking the commandments they had literally broken. Renewal of the covenant required replacement of the original tablets. So God tells him, Chisel out two stone tablets like the first ones, and I will write on them the words that were on the first tablets, which you broke. Be ready in the morning, and then come up on Mount Sinai. Present yourself to me there on top of the mountain. No one is to come with you or be seen anywhere on the mountain. Not even the flocks and herds may graze in front of the mountain. So Moses chiseled out two stone tablets like the first ones and went up Mount Sinai early in the morning, as the Lord had commanded him, and he carried the two stone tablets in his hands. This again confirms that although Moses chiseled the stone tablets, it was God himself who wrote the words on them and Moses would be on the mountain for a second 40-day period. Verses 5-7, through The Name and Glory of God Moses had made the bold request to see the glory of God. It was granted to him, but with the protection of him being placed in a cleft of the rock and being covered with God's hand, so he wouldn't die if he saw God's face. Then we're told that the Lord came down in a cloud. The image of a cloud associated with the presence of God is well established, as we've mentioned before. But instead of showing his power and majesty as his glory, he proclaims his name, the Lord. This name, Yahweh, or YHWH in Hebrew, is the covenant name. He revealed to Moses when he first called him from the burning bush in Exodus 3. Whenever you read the word LORD, all in capital letters, that is Yahweh. It reminds them that God has made a covenant with Israel, and he would be faithful to keep it. As he passes in front of Moses, God proclaims, The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. By describing his characteristics, he shows us that it is this nature and his attributes that make him glorious. Let's look at each of the descriptions of our God. First, it says he is compassionate. That carries the idea of suffering together. We saw this first when he told Moses, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I am concerned about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the home of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. And now the cry of the Israelites has reached me, and I have seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. We will see this later as well in the book of Judges. 
Whenever the Lord raised up a judge for them, he was with the judge and saved them out of the hands of their enemies as long as the judge lived. For the Lord relented because of their groaning under those who oppressed and afflicted them. And also, then they got rid of their the foreign gods among them and served the Lord, and he could bear Israel's misery no longer. God also described himself as gracious, and that means full of grace. Grace is unmerited favor. It is often confused with mercy, which carries the idea of leniency and judgment, so that an offender does not get the punishment they deserve. When you think of the parable of the prodigal son, it is mercy that the father doesn't punish him for his behavior, but it is grace that prepares a feast. Luke 15. There is nothing in God that requires him to be gracious, or else grace ceases to be grace. Grace that is demanded or required is not grace, but payment. God is slow to anger. This is demonstrated time and again with the Israelites in the wilderness, and again during the time of the judges, and again with us. So many times he could have just wiped them out and started over, but because of his covenant represented in his name, he continued to lead and provide for them. God is abounding in love and faithfulness. Imagine an all-powerful being who was not also good, loving, and unchanging. Such a God would be terrifying and capricious. We'd never know if he would change the rules by which he judged, or if he'd change his mind about the security of our salvation, or even if such a thing would be possible. But thank God he is not like that. He is not just love itself, but he is abounding in love, and this superabundant love overflows to his creatures. He is also abounding in faithfulness. That means his mercies are new every morning. And because he continues to maintain his creation by his providence, even unbelievers experience the common graces of sunshine and rain, food and water, stable government and order. David praises God for these attributes in Psalm 145, 8 and 9. The Lord is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and rich in love. The Lord is good to all. He has compassion on all he has made. God is not just abounding in love, but he maintains his love to thousands. It is the sustaining nature of his amazing love that gives us a sense of security. From generation to generation, we can trust that he has not changed and continues to draw people to himself and keep them in his love. He had told them, this when he revealed the Ten Commandments. He said, But showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. God says he forgives wickedness, rebellion, and sin. While it may seem like these are synonyms, there are subtle differences. Wickedness is a disregard for righteousness, justice, truth, honor, and virtue. It manifests in our thoughts and actions. It is also called iniquity, which carries the idea of being unequal, crooked, or not up to a standard. Rebellion is opposition to authority, specifically God's authority over our lives, to command us and to, to keep his commandments. This rebellion began in the Garden of Eden with our first parents deciding for themselves what was right or wrong. It is an attempt to dethrone the king of the universe, so we can sit there ourselves. 
Another word for it is transgression, which implies crossing over a line. Sin is a violation against a divine law. It carries over images from archery and means to miss the mark or to fall short of a standard. God forgives all these aspects of our failure to keep his law. There is a tendency in our day to overemphasize the love of God and downplay his justice. But lest we think God is so forgiving that he will overlook iniquity, he reminds us that he is a just judge. He says, yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. Justice will be done, often in this life, but most certainly in the next. No one gets away with anything wicked or unjust. Because he sees everything and knows the intents and motives of our hearts, he will judge justly. The sense of the children, grandchildren, and even great-grandchildren suffering for the sins of the parents refers to the effects that their sins have on subsequent generations. Later, when God says he will punish Israel with exile, he still offers hope. I am with you and will save you, declares the Lord. Though I completely destroy all the nations among which I scatter you, I will not completely destroy you. I will discipline you, but only in due measure. I will not let you go entirely unpunished. The prophet Micah proclaims, Who is a God like you, who pardons sin and forgives the transgression of the remnant of his inheritance? You do not stay angry forever, but delight to show mercy. Verses 8 and uh, 9 appeal to God. This revelation of the glorious attributes of God caused Moses to bow on the ground and worship him. He doesn't record his own feelings about the experience except to say that he worshipped. It's all about God. Then he boldly asks, Lord, he said, if I have found favor in your eyes, then let the Lord go with us. Although this is a stiff-necked people, forgive our wickedness and our sin and take us as your inheritance. Moses again asks for the presence of God on their journey in spite of the character of the people. It is the faithful character of God that makes the difference. The only change in this request is that Moses uses the regular word for Lord rather than Lord in caps, which is the covenant name of God. Since he is the one writing it, there must be a reason why he did this, although he doesn't tell us. Verses 10 through 26, Renewal of the Covenant. God answers, I am making a covenant with you. Before all your people, I will do wonders never before done in any nation in all the world. The people you live among will see how awesome is the work that I, the Lord, will do for you. The favored status of this nation over all others will be evident to all. Then he says, Obey what I command you today. I will drive out before you the Amorites, Canaanites, Hittites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. Although they will physically fight the nations they are to dispossess, it is God who is driving them out. This echoes the promise he made when he first called Moses in Exodus 3.8. Then he warns them, Be careful not to make a treaty with those who live in the land where you are going, or they will be a snare among you. Break down their altars, smash their sacred stones, and cut down their Asherah poles. Do not worship any other god, 
for the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. Matthew Henry says, They cannot worship God aright who do not worship him only. The prohibition against international treaties with them is based on the fact that these events involved recognizing the deities of the parties in the contract, thus inviting idolatry and syncretism. Such an innocent beginning could easily ensnare them. Later we'll see how Joshua was duped into a treaty with the Gibeonites, which Israel was then required to honor. They, are, they were told to remove all images of their idolatrous worship, to break down their altars, smash their sacred stones, and cut down their Asherah poles. Such things would tempt them to worship in that way as well. But God would not share his glory because he is a jealous God. Their future behavior would demonstrate the disaster of disobeying this command. God explains how this can happen. Be careful not to make a treaty with those who live in the land, for when they prostitute themselves to their gods and sacrifice to them, they will invite you and you will eat their sacrifices. And when you choose some of their daughters as wives for your sons, and those daughters prostitute themselves to their gods, they will lead your sons to do the same. Here he explains that it can start out with something as simple as sharing a meal, but this food will have been sacrificed to idols. Then, as time goes by and they live among these people, there may be intermarriage. And because the marriage relationship is so close, and because it is usually the unbeliever who influences the believer rather than the other way around, the Israelites will be led to worship in the same manner. In both examples, God calls it prostituting themselves to their gods. Prostitution is often linked with idolatry in scripture because God sees his relationship to his people as a marriage relationship and worshipping idols is the worst kind of infidelity. Then a few recaps. Do not make any idols. Celebrate the festival of unleavened bread. For seven days eat bread made without yeast as I commanded you. Do this at the appointed time in the month of Aviv for in that month you came out of Egypt. The first offspring of every womb belongs to me, including all the firstborn males of your livestock, whether from herd or flock. Redeem the firstborn donkey with a lamb, but if you do not redeem it, break its neck. Redeem all your firstborn sons. No one is to appear before me empty-handed. Then a reminder about the Sabbath. Six days you shall labor, but on the seventh day you shall rest. Even during the plowing season, and harvest you must rest. There were to be no exceptions. The Sabbath rest was a sign of the Mosaic Covenant as circumcision was a sign of the Abrahamic Covenant. Then a reminder of the feasts. Celebrate the festival of weeks with the first fruits of the wheat harvest and the festival of ingathering at the turn of the year. Three times a year all your men are to appear before the Sovereign Lord, the God of Israel. The third feast is Passover, which was already mentioned. Again, no exceptions. Although Jerusalem had, was not yet chosen as the place where this would happen, this command anticipated it. And so they wouldn't worry that they would return to find their property overrun by the former occupants. God promised, I will drive out nations before you and enlarge your territory, 
and no one will covet your land when you go up three times each year to appear before the Lord your God. They need not worry. God was well able to keep the land in their hands. Do not offer the blood of a sacrifice to me along with anything containing yeast, and do not let any of the sacrifice from the Passover festival remain until morning. These instructions were all reminders of the Passover night. They reminded, bring the best of the first fruits of your soil to the house of the Lord your God. This recognized God's provision and blessing through their crops. Then the obscure command, do not cook a young goat in its mother's milk. It was believed this was a pagan practice, and so they were to avoid it. Verses 27 and 28, the Ten Commandments rewritten. Then the Lord said to Moses, Write down these words, for in accordance with these words I have made a covenant with you and with Israel. This is another time when we see that Moses is the author of these books, while it is also called the Word of God, because we hear his very words. And Moses was there with the Lord forty days and forty nights without eating bread or drinking water. He was sustained supernaturally. This is his second forty-day period on the mountain, but it was not interrupted by Moses being sent down to deal with sin in the camp. And he wrote on the tablets the words of the covenant, the Ten Commandments. Moses brought the empty stone tablets to the mountain so that God could rewrite the Ten Commandments. We should never cease to be thankful that God has not only chosen to speak to his creatures, but that he chose to preserve that word in scripture. It was written for our learning. Verses 29 through 35, the radiant face of Moses. Then we're told, when Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the covenant law in his hands, he was not aware that his face was radiant because he had spoken with the Lord. When Aaron and all the Israelites saw Moses, his face was radiant, and they were afraid to come near him. But Moses called to them, so Aaron and all the leaders of the community came back to him, and he spoke to them. Afterward, all the Israelites came near him, and he gave them all the commands the Lord had given him on Mount Sinai. When Moses finished speaking to them, he put a veil over his face, but whenever he entered the Lord's presence to speak with him, he removed the veil until he came out. And when he came out and told the Israelites what he had been commanded, they saw that his face was radiant. Then Moses would put the veil back over his face until he went in to speak with the Lord. This marked a change from the first 40-day period. This time the people were not defiant and were afraid of the evidence that Moses had been in God's presence. Scarlet Threads so what scarlet threads or hints of Jesus Christ or the Gospels do we find in this chapter? God's glory is revealed by his character. In the New Testament, the ultimate revelation of God's love is Jesus' death on the cross. God revealed he was compassionate or that he shared in their misery. God showed his compassion for sinners by sending his own son even while we were his enemies. God is gracious he demonstrated this grace when he sent his son to earth to save us, not because of any good in us, but strictly because of his grace. God is slow to anger. When we look at how Jesus was mistreated and how God's people have been treated since then, and all the wickedness in the world, we are amazed that judgment hasn't already fallen. 
but he is patient in order that many more will come to salvation. God is abounding in love and faithfulness. It is because of these things that we have our salvation, security, and provision. God forgives our wickedness, rebellion, and sin. He had pictured this through all the animal sacrifices in the Old Covenant, but completely and finally in the New Covenant through the sacrifice of His Son, the Lamb of God. God is a just judge. Because He has punished His Son in our place, we know He will never hold our sins against us and judge them a second time. Although He is gracious and loving and forgiving, He is a just judge and will still judge sin. A future judgment day is sure. God made a covenant with Israel, and Moses was the mediator. Jesus has made a new covenant of grace with us, and he is the mediator. The Israelites were told to have nothing to do with the unbelieving inhabitants of the land, or they'd be ensnared into idolatry. This would happen. We are to avoid being unequally yoked to unbelievers. This prohibition against intermarriage was never because of racial differences, but only religious differences. The making of idols was forbidden. We are to avoid idols, literal or figurative. They were to keep the feasts. Now that we are in the New Covenant, those feasts, which pointed forward to Jesus, who was their fulfillment, no longer apply to us. Paul tells us that Jesus is our Passover. While they were away from home at the feasts, God promised their land and homes would be safe, as he would see to it. We are responsible to do our duty and leave it to God to protect us. Firstborn sons and firstborn livestock animals were to be redeemed, relating back to the Passover night. We are redeemed by something more precious, the blood of God's own Son. No one was to appear before God empty-handed. We cannot approach God on our own merits, but must plead the blood of the sacrifice of Jesus, the Lamb of God. The Sabbath was to be kept. Jesus is our Sabbath rest. We no longer work for our salvation, but rest in his finished work. Even though there is a difference between the Jewish Sabbath and the Lord's Day, we still need to rest and worship. We need to show that our fellowship with God takes precedence over work. Blood was forbidden, pointing back to the value of life represented by, God, by blood and pointing forward to the supreme value of the blood of Christ. Yeast was forbidden as it represented the subversive, permeating effects of sin in our lives. We are now to avoid sin, not yeast. They were to bring their first fruits to God. We are to give God our first and best. Jesus was the first fruit from the dead, and we will follow after, being given glorified resurrection bodies like his own. Moses, representing the law, was sustained supernaturally for forty days and nights without food or water. Elijah, representing the prophets, also went forty days and nights without food. Jesus, who is the fulfillment of the law and the prophets, was sustained likewise when he was in the wilderness before his temptation. God wrote the Ten Commandments on tablets of stone. Now he has written his law on our hearts. Although Jesus has freed us from the curse of the law, we are not free from the commands of the moral law. 
We demonstrate our love for God when we obey him. Moses' face glowed radiantly when he had been in the presence of God. When Jesus was on the Mount of Transfiguration, his face shone like the sun, and his whole being glowed whiter than anything on earth. During that time, both Moses and Elijah appeared with him to talk with him. This glory was partial and transient, but the glory of Jesus' mercy is even greater than the glory of his majesty. The Apostle Paul said this veil prevented the people from seeing a fading glory and it related to the inadequacy of the Old Covenant and the blindness of the Jews in his day uh, to Jesus the Messiah. He said a veil is over their hearts uh, when they read the Old Covenant and it is only taken away in Christ. Because we have the ministry of the indwelling Holy Spirit instead of the transitory nature of Moses' ministry, our glory keeps increasing as we are changed into his image more and more as we see Christ with unveiled faces. You've been listening to the Bible Companion series by author P.H. Thompson. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe and comment. Continue listening for Exodus chapter 35. May God bless the study of his word.